the uniqueness of the resurrection of Christ lies not just in his coming back to life, but having been raised to life and being alive forever. It is the fact that he is alive now that is the amazing thing. We have a man in heaven who intercedes for us. He is alive. The risen one is alive now. And that is the amazing thing that we're celebrating, that he is alive. I've been deeply struck this year as I've thought about the kind of amazing fact of Easter, at really how ironic Christ was in talking about his resurrection. He talks about raising up a temple, and in three days, that would actually took 46 years to build, He talks about the only sign being like Jonah in the belly of a giant fish for three days. He talks about to Martha that he is not only going to be resurrected, but he is the resurrection, personified, and that he is life. As Paul says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We're going to look at each of these four sort of cameos in turn to understand more fully the power of Easter and why we actually, what we believe hangs or falls and what we believe about the resurrection. Without the resurrection, our preaching is useless, our faith is futile, and we are to be more pitied than all men. So, I'm just going to talk a bit about irony, a bit, okay? Uh, what is irony? When, when Jesus uses irony, what is he doing? What is that? Well, the dictionary definition is a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects. And it's often wryly amusing as a result. It's a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions is clear to the audience or the reader, although unknown to the character. And first of all, I thought we'd have a bit of a light-hearted look at some rather amusing, ironic pictures. Here we go. (laughs) Just... I, I like that one. Just <laughs> do you see that? I see that sometimes. <laughs> Thank you for driving carefully. Good. Um, Obviously, Shakespeare uh, often used it, uh, as we know, in kind of Romeo and Juliet, where she thinks that her love, Romeo, is dead, and yet he's really just taken this potion which mimics death. And uh, in the kind of tragedy, she stabs herself, only to leave Romeo heartbroken when he wakes up. All the while, the audience is aware of what's actually 
this sort of tragic scene that's kind of forming. So we're kind of looking in on it. And um, one of the most famous kind of examples in the Old Testament is um, in the book of Esther. Uh, and we see this evil guy, Haman, uh, who thinks he's manipulated events uh, to hang the godly Mordecai. Uh, but he's outmaneuvered by the queen, Esther, um, he thinks he'll be rewarded. She throws this big party. He's invited to it. Uh, and actually, he finds himself literally hoisted on his own gallows. Uh, and we kind of see this kind of, we're, we're looking in on it, and we're seeing it's really kind of an amazing irony that's kind of going on there. And I want to look at these four different statements uh, about Christ's resurrection and kind of the four things that it achieves for us. So I want to kind of just look today and say, what is it that actually the, the resurrection does for us? And that's why I'm kind of looking at it in this way. And first of all, we're going to start off with a 46-year-old um, building project, okay, in John 2. Okay. John 2, 18 to 22. The Jews then said to him, well, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, well, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, well, it took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. It often seems to me that when I read the Gospels, that actually Jesus seems to almost deliberately say things that are kind of wind up the uh, religious authorities. He says things that actually he kind of knows they will probably misunderstand. Uh, and he's kind of, but he's saying something very important. He knows that actually this kind of incident of him making this bold statement about the temple is going to be thrown back in his face uh, at his trial. The trouble is that the false witnesses who are kind of telling it, they kind of get it jumbled up and they kind of misunderstand or kind of can't get their act together in terms of saying it. So it kind of backfires on them. You remember the story. He, he is here. He's just having thrown over the money changers uh, tables. He's just been saying, actually, what you've done here is an absolute mockery to God. You've turned this house that was supposed to be a house of worship and a house of prayer into just a money-making machine. And then we see Jesus give this very cryptic reply. For those that are demanding, he validates his authority from God. Uh, he kind of knows that actually their request for a sign isn't really genuine. That they're not repentant sinners who, they, who know they need a saviour. Let's just remember, he, isn't just talking, he doesn't just choose a building somewhere, just a costly building. We can look around Edinburgh and we can think there's a lot of costly buildings. He doesn't just kind of stand in front of a costly building and go, you know, this is, this, you know tear down this building. He's actually he's in the temple, the temple, the Jerusalem temple, the one that is actually the most kind of within that temple. There is the holy of holies, the very place where only the high priest can go once a year. Nobody else is able to enter in. 
It's the very, it is the closest of actually getting close to God that they had, of actually this temple and this place within the temple, in the inner courts. And he chooses this to actually talk about himself. And he says, do you see this building? And he talks about it actually being, actually there's going to be free access. You break down this building. Actually, I am the temple of God. And he doesn't say it like that, but that's actually what we understand from it. That actually he's saying, actually I am here so that you don't have to go to a building in the middle of kind of Jerusalem to actually worship God but you actually come to me. It's actually we come to Christ in spirit and in truth. We come to him so that we can worship him wherever we are. We, we don't think this building is kind of holy in itself. What, we're, what is holy is Jesus Christ. And we, the people of God, come and we worship him. You can worship him in your living room and actually open your heart and start to worship him. You're actually, you've got that access towards him. He's, he's saying by my resurrection, actually what I bring is actually an ability for everyone, ev everywhere, anyone across the world to actually come and worship me and be able to have that free Access. There's not like a hidden place that only one person can go into. This is something that every single person can actually have free access to Almighty God. And he gained this by his resurrection. Yeah? It's an amazing openness that actually he gained. And he's bringing this at this time when he's just knocked over these tables. And he's bringing it in. I love this quote from D.A. Carson. That body, word became flesh. The Father, an incarnate Son, enjoys unique mutual indwelling, becomes the focal point of the manifestations of God to man, the center of all true worship. This true temple would rise from the dead. Amen? The resurrection means we continually have the living temple of Christ with us today to worship God wherever we are. Just notice one other thing on this. He says, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I will raise it up. Not only does he refuse to perform like some kind of circus monkey, uh, a miracle for these people to try and wow them into believing who he is, but he just reasserts his divinity. <laughs> you know, he's, say, he's really saying, you know, you can destroy me or you think you can destroy me, but actually I have the power to raise myself back to life because I am almighty God. It's amazing. But it's a really important point because the one who right now is alive 
is the same one who has that power. And he has it for you, and he has it for me. Amen? So the first thing the resurrection achieves is radical freedom in our worship. Just as we promised, he promised the Samaritan woman at the well, not just limited to this kind of the city in Israel. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Samaria, so yeah, we know you guys have got it. But anywhere, anytime, for anyone, it is an amazing thing. Yeah? Right the way across the world. Right now, you think how many thousands and millions of people are worshipping God in so many different countries and different languages and they've got free access all because Jesus rose from the dead. This temple that was destroyed rose again. Okay, second thing is a giant fish. And I'm going to look at Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see, again, going on about the sign, we want to see a sign from you. <laughs> but he answered and said to them, it's an evil and adulterous generation that craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. What is the sign of Jonah the prophet? What is he talking about? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, he refuses to do miracles just to try and verify his sonship. Instead, he takes them back to a well-known story of Jonah and Nineveh. He reminds them that Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and nights. They don't understand what this has to do with him at this point. But he's saying that the only sign that will be given to this generation is his resurrection from the dead after three days. That's what he's saying. That's the only sign I'm giving is actually my resurrection from the dead. How often have we heard similar kind of requests or even thought them ourselves? If only you'd give me a sign, Lord. If only, if, only, if only God could, or if you're talking to somebody, they say, well, if only he, he, you could do a kind of miracle right now, I'd believe. I'd believe. Yeah, no, I would. And we kind of, we do that in our hearts. Uh, we need to remember the resurrection. Nineveh was a heathen nation. It, 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 it was, it was, wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, a Jewish nation that had gone wrong. It was a heathen nation. And yet, they completely repented of their rebellious ways. And they sought God's mercy and true repentance. Such that there was an outflow of God's grace uh, to the whole nation. And, God, and Jesus is saying, there's a greater one than Jonah here. His resurrection is all the proof that is needed to believe in him and repent. His resurrection is all the proof that is needed. If you 
don't know Christ today, and I'm going to give you opportunity later on. If you don't know him and you're still wrestling with it, and most of us have been there in the past, okay? So actually come into that place, actually thinking, actually, do I, what do I believe? His resurrection is all the proof that it's needed to turn away from a life living to please oneself to a life of pleasing him. We know that Thomas, the disciple, sort of struggled with this point. And he was actually at the point where he said, actually, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection until I can poke my finger in the holes in his hand and actually where the nails have embedded into his hands from the cross. And obviously Jesus actually takes him up on it. Jesus is linking repentance and belief in him with his resurrection. And in reality, the whole of Israel should have repented following his resurrection. There was, as we're told, over 500 people who actually uh, saw him after he'd been risen from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the key proof that Jesus is both man and divine. He isn't just a great prophet. He's part of the Godhead himself, and he continues to rule and reign. Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, I don't know what you're like about the story, but I think, it, for me, it's probably one of the hardest kind of stories to believe in the Old Testament, and yet you see Jesus doesn't have a problem with it. Jesus not only doesn't have a problem with it, but he actually uses it to actually say, you have a problem with it? It's almost like, do you have a problem with the kind of great fish story? Because the Ninevites didn't. And, and if you've got a problem with that, what about somebody coming back from the dead? I've got a problem with that. That's going to be, how about that? And actually living and never being able to die again. There's this, he, he uses this. Um, and he's, so what we see is that this second achievement that actually comes from this point is actually the resurrection is proof enough of Christ's deity. We can't just dismiss him as a good man, as a, uh, a well-meaning idealist, an outspoken prophet, or even as a lunatic. He proved beyond doubt that he was truly the son of God by his resurrection. Amen? Amen. And any other interpretation is simply gross ignorance or purposeful blindness to the facts. Yeah? There's just... So, so we, we've seen that actually he's a, the resurrection brings worship, true worship, that we can worship him, but it also, secondly, is actually the proof of his deity. It's all actually anyone needs to actually say, yeah, no, I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Thirdly, thirdly, we hear the story about a grieving sister. The Lazarus story happened shortly before Jesus' own death and resurrection. Christ had purposely delayed his journey to go after he'd heard that Lazarus was um, sort of terminally ill. And he purposely delayed his journey getting there. 
okay, on purpose. He'd actually taken longer than he needed. He didn't rush. He actually delayed his going. And he says this to his disciples, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so you may believe. He was preparing them for his imminent death. So it just happened about a, a week or so after this. And then we hear him talk to Martha. And I want to bring this out. Martha says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. This is probably one of the boldest statements in the whole Bible. I am the resurrection and the life. At Easter, we aren't just celebrating that Jesus rose again, but that he is the resurrection. Martha had understood that at the end, all who believed would rise. But not that this same Jesus, who will call the elect to life, was standing right beside her. This was actually the one, the very Jesus was standing there. I am the one who is going to call. <laughs> I am the one at the end of the day that is going to call all that are dead to life. That's just an amazing statement to actually... I am the resurrection. What an amazing truth. It's an amazing truth for us. All our loved ones that have died and, and are believers are currently experiencing abundant life. Abundant life. They actually, they shall never die. They will come as they die, there will be Jesus there. And there's resurrection and life. We walk, as it were, just through from this life straight through. Jesus refocuses Martha from the abstract to the personal. Easter teaches us that it is not about a kind of force or an event, but it's about a person. The resurrection and the life the personification of life itself. It's not just something Jesus does, but that he is. He is life. He is life. He is life for us. As we, as we come to him, he is life. I am life for you. Yeah? I am life to you. I think it's an amazing thing that actually we... We come to him, the very one that actually has life in him. Romans 
8 says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities in present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection of Christ has determined our existence for all time and eternity. Christ's resurrection set in motion a chain of inexorable events, thank you, that absolutely determines our present and our future. Okay, it's just an amazing point that actually we have that what he has done determines what we are now and what we are in the future. Death could not hold him down. Yeah? Death could not hold him down because he is life. And if you've put your faith in him today, he is life for you. I think it's amazing how he uses, God uses kind of so many things that actually he turns around. We see just shortly after this event, Caiaphas is kind of gathers the Sanhedrin together and he says to them, he says, actually, we need to get rid of this guy because actually the whole nation's going to start believing him. You know nothing at all, he says, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation will perish. And the amazing thing, the ironic thing about that is that God's saying, yeah, no, that's exactly true. It's just that actually it does take one man, one perfect man to die in order that the whole nation, the whole of God's people would actually not perish. I just think, just there are some just God uses even the kind of words of his enemies and he kind of turns them around and actually kind of says you know what I'm in charge of everything the third achievement then that actually we see from the resurrection is that the resurrection wasn't just abstract it's not just something that happened to him or it's kind of like it's it's a thing that will happen in the future but it actually is true for each of us. He is the resurrection for us who believe. He is life for us today. He is life for you and for me. Are you feeling dead on the inside today? Call on him and he will fill you with his life. Our outer bodies may be wasting away, but our inner spirit is becoming more alive day by day. Amen? And finally, our greatest enemy, death. We've seen the personification of the word, the resurrection, and life in Jesus Christ, and now we turn to death. Paul in his writings often depicts death as our greatest enemy the sort of Goliath that Jesus wrestles with and defeats on our behalf. Anyone who's had a close loved one that's died is under no illusion that far from being some kind of comic 
figure of a kind of man in a hood with a sickle in his hand. He's much more like this. Uh, and this quote from Paul Beasley Murray says, death is a destructive enemy, the great adulterer, destroying relationships, tearing apart husband and wife, parent and child, friends and lovers. It is a ruthless enemy, cutting down not just the old, but also the young. But the good news of the resurrection is that death is a defeated enemy. Jesus has risen from the dead and in rising has broken death's icy grip on humankind. Yeah? <laughs> the great irony is that through this one man, Jesus Christ, when sin entered the world, we all will die. But through this one man, we all, all those that believe in him, will have life. And it's a great turning around. This is like God's just turning the whole story. We see it in the uh, Narnia books by C.S. Lewis as he brings this out. Aslan, the lion, uh, looks to have been defeated by the white witch. But after three days, he's resurrected to life. And then the whole of Narnia that has been frozen in death for so long is brought back to life again. I just want to say that through the resurrection, it's, it's, it's actually the whole of creation that, that what's happened is there's things being put in motion that the whole of creation will be put right again. Yeah? The whole of creation, everything that's wrong, will be put right again. The ultimate irony is that where it looked like death and evil were going to corrupt mankind and triumph, God had other plans. It looked like the game was over and evil had won. The religious leaders had cleverly orchestrated it their own way. But, as we know, they underestimated this humble carpenter's son from Nazareth. We are looking, I love this thing, we're kind of looking in, in this kind of worldwide play, and we're able to see somehow, sort of standing kind of outside of time and space, through the scripture, God's wonderful, orchestrated, worldwide events. And we see something, it's like, us standing outside of the play and kind of watching. But through scripture, we kind of can see the beginning and we can see right through to the end because of the resurrection. And we see what others can't see because we're seeing it through scripture. God is sending his son to die and then to be raised again, defeating sin and death in three days. And as Paul says in Romans 6, Never to die again. He's never to die again. He cannot be killed again. He has died and he's been risen and he is never to die again. And he is there to breathe life into all of us. The fourth achievement, if we just get the band coming up. The fourth achievement then is that whereas sin caused us all to experience death in Christ, we may all experience life 
through his resurrection. So what have we seen? I'll just remind you, and then we're going to worship God. We've seen a temple. A temple that was thought to be a kind of stone building, but actually he was talking about a living person himself for us to worship wherever we are, all because of the resurrection. Secondly, we saw Jonah, this strange prophet, who was swallowed by a fish, pointing to the Son of God, swallowed by death. But death was not able to hold him. And now we are looking forward to a certain hope of our death of being swallowed up by life. We are swallowed up by life. This amazing, this kind of turnaround that actually God uses throughout. As we look right back thousands of years ago and right through, we're seeing, look what God was actually, this wasn't some last minute decision. This was something that God had been orchestrated all the time. Thirdly, we looked at Martha, who like us can see the resurrection as an abstract rather than a personal savior. And God is saying to him, No, no, this life is for you. This resurrection is for you and for me. Don't make it something that is, it's for them. No, no, Christ saying, I am coming as life to you today. And fourthly, death, who is seen as our most dangerous enemy, to be defeated once and for all, and this King Jesus of life is the supreme conqueror. Easter is fantastic news for those who've put their faith in Christ. We have this sure and certain hope of life never ending, being resurrected by him just as he was. And I just want to say this, if you are still at a place where you're still thinking about it and you haven't actually put your faith in him, Don't put it off. That's what I'm going to say to you. Don't put it off. Say, no, I want to do that. It is the most important decision that you will ever make. And I want to give you an opportunity at the end of our song for you to actually say, yes, I would love to make that decision today. Let's all stand and let's worship.